Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sports fans, thanks to you, this podcast is now in the top 10 in iTunes. And let's not stop there. Let's get it to the top five. If you like what you hear, rate and review us. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know how much I love feedback and respond to almost every mention. So let's get the conversation going. You in? Is Kawhi Leonard a top five player? What can Portland do to improve their team? Have the Cavaliers improved enough to challenge the Warriors? The only question left is, say it with me, you in? Sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to bring on the show Danny LaRue, who is a co-star of the Twitter NBA show and writer for Sporting News and Real GM, among all the other places that you appear. So, Danny, uh, thanks for coming on the show today, and uh, let's chop it up on some NBA stuff. What do you say? Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Okay, well, uh, you know, I was on Twitter yesterday and people started yelling at me because I sort of assumed that people thought that Kawhi Leonard is one of the top five players in the NBA. Um, any quick thoughts on that? Off the top of my head, I think that he is. He's certainly an elite defender, two-time defensive player of the year, and, you know, maybe not at that level this year, but still pretty close. And his offensive game, I, I think last year we appreciated it because it was new. But he has been great offensively this year yet again. I agree, and I feel like there is some weird – Here, by the way, what, what it really is about is the Russell Westbrook fans who are rubbed very raw by me, unfortunately, over the years. So because I think that they automatically assume that if you're looking at the top five and I want to put him in there, <laughs> that it's going to have to be Russ that comes out. And they might be right. Um, do you? It, and by the way, I think it's also sort of an inane comparison. I can't really compare Kawhi to Russ. Can you? They have such different roles and responsibilities. Russ does a great job of what he's assigned to do, and Kawhi does a great job of what he's assigned to do. But you also have to draw a separation between the best player and the best season. Like I have Russell Westbrook number one in my MVP voting right now, it changes day to day between him and Harden. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I think he's a better basketball player than LeBron James or Kawhi in this case. He's still incredibly good, but those are two different questions. You know, that's a great uh, point, and that's great uh, speaking to the narrative of how these things get decided. So are you on the on board with the notion that the number of wins the team gets is going to influence the MVP race uh, more so than not? That's the way it usually works, so I would expect it to. I mean, from I think Tim Bontemps had a straw poll from media members in he did an MVP piece the last time Harden and Westbrook played, and I believe Harden was substantially ahead, and I believe that's largely because his team is doing better. I mean, the Rockets have been excellent, not knocking Harden in that way, but if the stats, let's say, were exactly flipped and the records were exactly flipped, I think that, that there are many who would feel the opposite way. 
Right. Uh, I, I agree. Now, here's the other thing that I think people also, all, you know, the Russell Westbrook fans, I, I, I feel like I'm, a, I'm an abusive father or something, and then they're looking for approval from me so much. But I think what happens is, is like, I'll say that I, I think the Thunder are sort of an underrated team. And I feel like most people want to dismiss his teammates as being horrible. And the only reason why they're having a you know, winning record and doing surprisingly well is because of what Westbrook is doing. And I don't know. Do, do you? I see some real. I, first of all, I think that the way the team was assembled has been it was done perfectly around him with what they had. And I don't know if they'd be able to do any better than they have so far. But I feel like there are some really good pieces in this team, and people are kind of overlooking that. And does that feel that way to you? Steven Adams is a legitimate NBA player. I think he's underrated defensively, and his offensive game has really stepped up over the course of this season. He was struggling early on and has gotten a lot better. Oladipo has had a better season than I expected. He's not the player that, that I thought we would see when he came into the draft. I had him second, you know, and I still believe in his talent, but he's making more of his threes, a little bit less on the ball handling than I had hoped, But and his defense has been fine. I've been impressed with how Westbrook has been able to get something out of their threes and fours. Robertson is a wonderful defender, mm-hmm. but he's been better offensively. He's Robertson's also a good rebounder. But also, the, some of that credit goes to Russ. Some of it also goes to Billy Donovan, that they've been able to overcome their horrendous lack of shooting is impressive. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and I feel you. And as far as Steven Adams goes, I mean, I think he's wholly underrated because he does so much of the dirty work that doesn't get counted in the box score. Uh, much more, like, I, I would put him in the top, I don't know, I got to look at the, at the list, but as far as centers goes, he's got to be up there uh, as far as, you know, just executing the role that he's supposed to do, setting tough screens, getting good rebounds. And you're right, the defense, I mean, he's saved, he's been, he's saved games for them um, in, in, the, in the face of Russ, you know, taking wild shots and whatever. He's been on the other end doing his duties really well. I, I actually like um, Jeremy Grant uh, for some reason. The little I've seen of him since he got there has been playing. Um, I've been impressed. The guy seems like he's very aggressive. And he can finish around the rim and might be a guy who can, you know, support some of the outside shooting of it. I've wanted to see Grant for a long time as a power forward next to a kind of a different type of center, which would be Ennis Canner, because Grant is super athletic. He can be a good weak side sh- weak side rim protector, but he still has trouble shooting, just like so many other guys. And I've been. Happy with him when he's been in a role more similar to that. But when they've been playing him at the three, his lack of shooting really gets in the way a little bit. And some of that is due to personnel. They just don't have enough wings like almost every other team in the NBA. But I would like to see him in a more optimized situation for him. And the Thunder should be there next year if they can get a couple wings on their roster. Yeah, I agree. Now, they, they do have some shooting that you know on the bench that doesn't play a lot of minutes in Ilya Sova and Moro. Um, do you feel like Moro's defense is that bad that they just simply can't get in more minutes? It pretty much has to be that or that he can't really accept that offensively because I've been a believer in Moro. I actually covered him early in his career when he was on the Warriors, and I've said before that I believe he's the best catch-and-shoot guy I've ever covered, and you know where I live. You know that I cover the Warriors. Yeah, He is amazing at that, but there are now so many different coaches that have either benched him or marginalized him, while that talent hasn't really changed except for this year when he struggled, but it's a small sample, that you feel like there has to be something going on. Because one or two two coaches benching a guy, that can happen. That can be a bad circumstance. They like somebody better. But when you get closer to five, there has to be something. Uh, Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've seen some evidence of it, but certainly... 
I don't know. It doesn't really strike me as something so egregious. And like he's gotten some DMPs the last four games and blowouts. A couple of those are blowouts in a way that, or not blowouts, but certainly comfortable wins in a way that um, it's just weird that like they complain about lack of shooting and yet they kind of have some pieces there. Um, and now the other thing with Oladipo, he was shooting about 40% from three, and that was very impressive. Now, that said, Russ does that. He creates a lot of open shots because these guys are going to be left alone. He's down to 38%. What do you feel? Is that going to be something that's going to – is that where he's regressing to, or is he going to get back up to where he was as a career high? Somewhere in the 37 to 39, so about where he is now, would be my inclination. You're right that he is getting better looks than he ever did in Orlando, which makes complete sense. It's something that we would expect. He also, when when you have the ball in your hands a little bit less, oftentimes the shots you take are better because they get they get filtered for you. And that's been helped by for him. But just when he was at 40%, I just didn't think he had that in him. And mm-hmm. I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to see him push it back up there. And it's certainly possible. I'm not writing it off. But I'd expect this to be closer to where he is. Sure. And, we, and we've seen players, you know, over the years, they do improve their shooting. That seems to be the one thing you can kind of count on. Um, and at the very least, I'm not excited about his mechanics. It's a little bit of a rhythm issue sometimes. But um, at the very least, like the shots he's getting for the most part are usually pretty good. Although I've seen him kind of quick release nail some threes that are, you know, somewhat contested off of a kick out from, from Russ. And, uh, and kind of like been like, whoa, uh, you know, this could be something there. So I don't know. I feel like they do have the pieces in, in a way that um, – you know, I don't think they could do any better. Do you feel like they've maximized the potential of what this team is with the roster as it is now? Yeah, I, you always maybe this is like I like to do it in terms of like a one to 100 outcome. This is maybe like a 95. So there could be a few little outliers that are past this. But in terms of a realistic one, this is about as good as they could expect. Yeah, definitely a shocker as far as I think everyone felt like they'd be maybe 500 probably scrape for like maybe the A seed. But I'm not even sure. By the way, like looking at the standings, are you surprised at how like the the records uh, toward the bottom of what the playoffs would be are this year? Really just that Portland has fallen off the way that they have. Yeah, they missed Aminu for a little while and Lillard missed a couple games. But if they were 500 or better, this wouldn't be that off of the overall expectation. I just would have thought that the Blazers would be where the Thunder are and the Thunder would be where the Blazers would be at that point if they're 500. Uh-huh. And so uh, currently where they now is the Thunder are 6th. And they're winning 60% of their games, which I, I feel like that's sustainable. They, I, I would imagine they're going to win about 48, 49 games and, uh, and be right there in that sixth spot. Um, and the, the Blazers, it's interesting. I mean, what is your take? Is there going to be a move they're going to make? It seems like they're upset with what's happened. They, they, you know, it, they had a lot higher expectations. Um, what do you think is going to happen with them? I hope they try something. I mean, not something irresponsible like trading CJ, but try something because they're largely set in the roster that they have just from a cap perspective and a lot of an underrated part of their of their situation i'm a cba nerd so this is something that i care about (laughs) is that they don't have a lot of contracts outside of their best players who they're not going to move who i would consider strong assets like the player plus the contract myers leonard isn't isn't really like that alan crabb a good player but getting paid a lot of money so those types of contracts, oh, Evan Turner, of course, but those types of contracts are harder to move, which makes it more challenging to make your roster better. So if they can pull something with their first round pick, with some of the other players on the roster, I'm totally for it. But I also do like their, like you know, their their core guys, both Lord and McCollum. But then if you expand it to Aminu and and Harkless, I like all of those guys, and I like all of those guys together. 
So it's it's a challenge to do it outside of that. But I I do feel like they should use somebody else to get a better defensive center because that is that is one of the points that they can just improve. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me that they got killed because um, of injuries and because they can't get. Um, oh my goodness, what's his face from the Warriors? Healthy. Um, oh, Azili basically you have to write him off probably for the rest of the season, which is really unfortunate. But just the way that like some of the some of what you hear both out of there and just from him himself, it's a shame. I mean, I covered Azili his whole NBA career before this year, but. Azili was probably considering his injury risk was probably never going to be the long term fix. He was all, he was an option, like a stopgap kind of thing, and it ended up being that he that he wasn't physically able to do that. But Mason Plumley is a very good player for what he does. You know, like as a capable passer, he he has kind of an all around game for a center. However, when you make the choice to have two offensive juggernauts in your two guards. You need to have that real defensive force at center. That's the trade-off you're making, and when you don't make that trade-off, you're gonna be you're gonna struggle on that end. Yeah, and I, I feel like Izzyli. I just sort of assume people are healthy, and then it's an unfortunate thing, even though we didn't see his past history. Uh, he he was supposed to be that guy, and uh, and so now. And here's the thing about Plumlee, because he's tantalizing. Like there are there are moments when he can protect the rim, and you're like, okay, and then he makes some good passes and he handles the ball. Um, I guess for him, it just seems like there's a consistency issue where he just sort of has whole games where he just doesn't show that that same plumbing doesn't show up. It's got to be confounding to him and to the Blazers, I imagine. When you watch other teams play the Blazers, especially if it's like your team, watch how how the other teams guards in particular approach Plumlee as a rim protector. Most of the time they have no fear. And while blocking shots is, is a big part of rim protecting, intimidation is another big part of it. The best def- the best rim protectors, Rudy Gobert is a good example of this if you want to go back in time to Dikembe or whoever. Mm-hmm. A big part of what they do defensively is not only blocking shots, but scaring people away from shooting near them in the first place. And you can actually create lower value shots just by your presence. Plumlee doesn't really do that. And I cover Zaza Pachulia, who also doesn't do that. <laughs> that is true. Zaza is not going to scare anybody from the rim. And speaking of, of Zaza, or certainly the Warriors, and then the game coming up on Monday, uh, which is kind of exciting, a rematch, again, uh, the, uh, the, between the Warriors and the, and the, and the Cavaliers. Um, what are your thoughts so far on how Kyle Korver looks with Cleveland? It's a work in progress. What has surprised me a little bit is that he's missed a couple of threes badly. You're dealing with a really small set of shots, like five or, you know, that is something in that range. So missing one, you know, off the backboard isn't the biggest thing in the world. But it, it's always going to take time because, as you know, different teams, different coaches run different sets and get players open in different ways. And while you could say, oh, shooters shoot. That isn't necessarily true in terms of how they get their looks in the first place. So I expect it'll take a little bit of time. Also, Corver's coming off the bench, so he's not playing as much with their best players, which would facilitate some of this kind of thing. But they also, these games don't matter to Cleveland. They have three and a half months to figure this out, so they can figure it out then. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some of those shots, and they're they're all pretty, there's five of them he's taken in the two games. And he hasn't made one yet. And there, yeah, there are some really bad misses. And I like to normally, you know, judge a shooter by how he misses because that oftentimes is a pretty indicative of how he is as a shooter. 
Uh, yeah, I, it's clear he's pressing. You know, LeBron comes in and says, you better shoot that the second you catch it or else, you know, we're, we're going to be mad. And, you know, that's, that's, it's, it's fun and it's good, but it's also, you know, probably laden with some pressure uh, of the new situation. So uh, that said, I did notice a couple of, like, pretty good defensive possessions from him as well. And I feel like people were freaking out about that. But, you know, again, it, you know, it just seems like that is not going to be the issue. He is long and he is smart. And I think that will go a long way. I agree with you in the regular season, but when you ratchet it up and have teams that can play three, four, and five offensive, cap- offensively capable or even forces at the same time, it gets harder. Like fitting him in against the Warriors is a very different thing than against basically any team in the regular season, especially when you consider that Kevin Love is a better overall player than Kyle Korver, and you probably want to hide him too. So you can't <laughs> hide two guys against the best of the best, whether we're talking Warriors, Spurs, or even at their best, the Raptors. Yeah, that is very true. So there's going to be some people to hide out there, maybe on both sides. I mean, certainly all the people who yell at me on Twitter about Steph, um, who are probably the same Russell Westbrook fans, uh, you know, are, are insisting that he is, uh, you know, not a good defensive player. I, I don't know if you'd seen the video I did last year where I, you know, it was titled that he, why he was an elite uh, defender, but he certainly isn't the same defender this year as far as I can see. Do you agree with that? I do. It has his his effort has been inconsistent on that end. He's been gambling a little bit more, which is not really a great thing for him. He has good good hands and sometimes good instincts, but not the best look for him because executing the scheme and just keeping your guy in front of you is enough. Mm-hmm. They have help defenders. They have a lot of other things. And I, I would love to, as somebody who actually is uniquely suited to this, as somebody who went to college with Russell Westbrook and has covered Steph Curry his entire career, I would love to bridge that gap with fans who – feel like praise of somebody other than their person, whoever that is, is criticism of somebody else. Both Westbrook and Curry are incredible players who are good in their own ways, and I feel it's totally fine to appreciate both of them for what they are without tearing the other one down. Uh, you know, can't we all just get along, Danny? We can all get along as long as as long as people are being reasonable. You know, if they're being... <laughs> reasonable then we can call them out and we can try to have an open discourse but we can all try okay i'm, I'm not going to accuse you of writing fake news so maybe we can start from there <laughs> there we um, go you know but uh okay so it's an interesting dichotomy right because it is a there seems to be some sort of zero sum going on here where it's like praise for russ is is you know tearing down step and the by and vice versa maybe more the other the other way um but uh and, and going back to that conversation like top five it's like and and there you know there are certain fans of certain players that seem to be a little bit more um you know, uh, on edge and, and easily uh, riled up, I suppose. Um, so what are you thinking so far with the Warriors and what's been happening with them? I mean, their defense has been resurgent and it's been really fun to watch Durant out there, I think, you know, making defensive plays more consistently than I think I've ever seen him do that. Uh, is this like the sort of like, is, this, is Ron Adams the Mike D'Antoni of the defensive side? He very well could be. You see a lot of players do better figure things out when Ron Adams gets in their picture. I think Curry has improved substantially as a defender in that way. And with Durant, we saw this in the Western Conference playoffs last year. He has this capability of being an impactful player. And it has been inconsistent during this regular season. But you wouldn't expect it to be consistent in the regular season because this Warriors team doesn't particularly care about the regular season. You know, they'll they'll go through it. They'll win a lot of games because they're better than everybody they play. But they're not giving it their all in that sense. And I think the biggest, there are two big takeaways that I've had so far from the season. One is 
it's all looking towards May and June and their capability in that way. Durant has at his best has been very good defensively and has been great offensively. And also the last month, Zaza Pachulia has shown that he is a player who is capable of providing a, let's call about 20 minutes per game in the playoffs. And that might sound like damning with faint praise, but it's actually a huge thing when you consider how many other minutes are sopped up by the Warriors All-Stars, if they can get 20 minutes from him, whether that is with the starters or without the starters, they will be in a very good place against the best teams in the league. I, I don't know. I get so frustrated by watching him on offense often, although he did hit a jumper. Maybe he might even hit two jumpers last night, or I think, in my mind's eye. But um, it just feels like it's frustrating to watch him out there uh, compared to what they do get with uh, JaVale. Um, but JaVale obviously is probably still isn't trusted enough to do that and certainly doesn't have enough trust for a playoff run yet. So is this simply how it's going to be? JaVale, they're going to just sort of dangle minutes out for him uh, in, in piecemeal and then, you know, keep it that way in the playoffs? Probably, but not definitely. He has the capability of becoming more than that, but he isn't yet. Defensively, JaVale gets overrated sometimes because he can jump really high and block. has some nice blocks. He had a nice one on Boban last night. But he doesn't execute the scheme particularly well most of the time. What's been shocking and, and amazing about the Warriors is that they've been looked really good offensively with him on the floor because Curry and Green in particular, but also Klay Thompson, which has been another huge surprise, are very comfortable dealing with a lob threat like they know how to pass to him they know the spaces they did it with Festus last year and various other players over the over the years and they know how to use him and JaVale can execute that spot pretty well sometimes he messes up the screens but other than that he does a pretty good job so he he could have a place in all of this especially in the right matchup and that's something Kerr's been trying over the last few games is picking the spots for JaVale and not just playing him regularly, but I think that'll be something similar to what he does in the playoffs. Yeah, and by the way, I think he could be one of those game changers in a playoff. You throw him out there for a five-minute run, and he could change the game, and then you get him out before he plays that one extra possession that's going to kill you, right, because he is either out of position on offense, and it doesn't. he seems like he's kind of grasping it and not. I, when they were in town, I tried to ask him some questions about, you know, just like, hey, let's talk about some fundamentals or whatever, and he goes, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, he didn't seem to have, and, and he was joking or good-natured about it, but it doesn't seem like, the attention to detail and footwork and spacing is are his strong suits. I can't speak too much to him personally just because we haven't had that much of a direct interaction. But if you look at his career, it certainly ties in there. I mean, if, if JaVale what had combined that, like the a physical ability that he has with a, a love and zest for the nuance of the game, he would be a very different player. But that's a story that you see all over the NBA, and that's it gives me a greater appreciation for how incredible these athletes are because you can have players like JaVale who are physical freaks, even among the NBA with his length and, and vertical, that need more to be an impactful player. Absolutely. It's just, and, you know, he's got a pedigree. You know, his, his mom was, you know, one of the best WNBA players, I think, of all time. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things where, uh, you know, it's not always that you develop all those things into one player. And it's, I guess it's rare. And, you know, what we do see that is a guy like, you know, I suppose like LeBron is probably the best example of a guy, right, who's got all the physical tools and all of the, um, the mental side of it as well. Absolutely. I don't think you can to say another one like LeBron in the modern era, 
Michael Jordan was another one of these, obviously, at, at various points in his career. And a great point that I think Michael Jordan and LeBron, to, to a degree, I mean, he's only 32 now, is that that combination of athleticism and intelligence also leads a player generally to age really well. Because Jordan, you know, he became a very different player later in his career. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll pretend the Wizards part didn't happen. Okay. But before that, he was, you know, he was a very talented player. His post-prime was pretty incredible. And Tim Duncan's the same way. Tim Duncan was, was probably underrated as an athlete in his prime. Kareem, same thing. Like, the players who combine those two things, they can run a long time. For sure. Uh, and, and really just be as effective as they ever had been. Michael was a really great point where, you know, he worked on his post game, which is going back to like LeBron, a guy who seems to have, um, you know, not not wanted to post up and sort of they have to remind him. And then when he does, it's fireworks. It's incredible that kind of, uh, you know, because he's such a good passer, what kind of gravity he pulls. And so, you know, the next question is, you know, will he continue to age gracefully because of his, you know, his three-point shooting this year is suddenly a lot better. I'm going to have to study it because it's, it's a little bit confusing to me. Like, all of a sudden, what has changed? And now he's shooting better because he didn't shoot well for a couple of seasons now. Uh, do you have any inclination? Has anyone been whispering to you about what's going on with that? Nobody's been whispering to me, but when I watch the footage of him, his mechanics do look a little bit better than last year. And it might be that... 2015-16 was a little bit more of an aberration. I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I believe last year was one of the worst years he's had in recent times. So maybe that was a little far off the mean, and maybe this year is a little bit above. And he's confident in his jump shot more this year than in, in prior years. And I talked about this a little bit on the Twitter NBA show because we did Cavs Blazers. And with LeBron, sometimes it's hard to calibrate whether he's confident or just feels like shooting the shot. But he does seem more confident in it this year. Yeah, and he's shooting it better than he has for a few seasons. And and that is true. And I think what we might be seeing with three-point shooting, there might be season-long swings or two-season-long swings. I think, you know, Danny Green is not a bad example of that either where he really struggled and now he's leading the league again. And I almost feel like, you know, slumps that we talk about, you know, in shooting may not be something that lasts from from that distance. You, You might conceivably go much longer periods of time as we're now, you know, five, six years into this new three-point shooting frenzy, right? Do you feel like that's the case? It certainly could be, and that ties in with something. For those those who are adept at converting college stats into NBA estimates, they often look at free throw percentage as opposed to three-point shooting because players in college do not take enough three-point shots to create a viable sample. So you can't really analyze whether a guy's going to be a good three-point shooter by how many threes they shoot and how well they do. It could be something similar to that where it's just so prone to variance that you don't want to draw too much into that, which is hard when we're talking about analysis. And that also ties into when when you're trying to figure out if a guy is good, watching those mechanics. I like to watch you know, the consistency of their jump, the consistency of their stroke, whether there's a hitch or anything like that. And that is a part of the question. Of course, how many of them go in is a part of it as well. Right. And the way Danny Green shoots, I've never liked his mechanics. He doesn't straighten his arm all the way, which to me feels like a little bit harder to replicate that, that uh, shot. And so, like, of course, like to me, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if he went on a really long bender where he just, you know, he shot 33 percent from three last year over 79 games. It's a lot of threes. And now he's at 45 percent. And so, you know, we could be seeing those swings with LeBron. My first instinct when I'm looking at it is he might be taking him from a little bit farther back from the line. And I wonder Mm -hmm. if that might be something that he discovered, like he can just let it fly a little bit more if he's got another three feet. Is that, am I crazy or do you see that as well? 
I haven't thought about it, but that certainly seems possible. And that we're actually seeing that more in the league. The Warriors did that a couple of years ago. The Rockets are actually doing it a lot now. And it it's an important thing because it just changes the geometry of the floor because you have to defend a wider area than even just the arc, you know, the arc and slightly around it. Also, I've talked about this with a few people before that a lot of a defender's mentality is around the line itself. And so if a guy is shooting three feet back, it's hard for the defender to calibrate. Oh, I have to close out farther now. And Mm -hmm. sometimes you can get a clean look for those who've never done it. The NBA three is a really long way away. Even like I I shot college threes a fair amount just because I used to play sometimes in places that had college threes. It feels a lot farther, but LeBron doesn't have to worry about that. Strength is not an issue for him with his jump shot. He can, he can get it there if he's comfortable from that distance. Oh, oh yeah, for sure. And people ask, like, where's the future of the NBA going with all these threes? And while I, I think that it will continue to rise, and I've always said, like, heck, if you can generate, like, 50 really good three-point shots, then we'll then take 50 three-point shots. But I, I think that the real difference is going to come from that distance. And I feel like we're going to see more and more players shooting farther away and being able to do it. I mean, there will be, at some point, uh, a, a diminishing return. But that would be my prediction, is that we're going to start seeing routinely guys shooting, you know, three, four feet behind that line to the point where, I mean, I don't think you can ever back that line up more for the same amount of points, but uh, I do think that that's going to stretch the defense even more, and then someone's going to have to happen defensively to adjust. Well, I'll give you two anecdotes that I, I think will give listeners an appreciation for how good players can do in this. So one is Steph Curry, some people know this, he practices from the edge of the logo every game and he doesn't make as many of those as he does standing on the three-point line but it's not bad the other one is uh, there was a game last year where Omri Caspi just went crazy from three and I asked him point blank I said where do you feel comfortable shooting shooting threes and he said dead candor he said if my feet are set I feel like I can make it inside half court so that's probably overstating it a little bit but when you're thinking about the idea of where this could be going there are players in this league who have a comfortability three, four, five feet out. And if they if they're coaches and they start realizing the benefits of that, we could start seeing more of it. For sure. I mean, I know I was a really good three-point shooter in high school. And when I would play pickup later and I would get in those moments, I would pull from, you know, f- four feet behind what the NBA line was and could, and could hit it or at least, you know, it would be close. And so I, I totally can understand how pros would do that. And I used to do it when I was when I would practice. I just start from 15 feet and then keep taking a step back and I'd just be able to nail them all, you know, all in a row. And I can keep going all the way back to like out of bounds. But imagine if I was doing that like – 500 shots a day and really doing it like i, I yeah. would just do it a couple if it times. was your job yeah if that was your job and you could teach your body how to do that then yeah because again not only um you, you get extra time you get it's more open and i remember I, I didn't have the balls to do this but when i was coaching in, in the early 2000s we were going to teach a kid how to shoot a two-handed set shot from like 40 feet because we felt he could probably make that 40% of the time and no one's going to guard him out there. But what we didn't envision is what we have now, which is sort of like, no, just have him shoot them and we'll just spread it out a little farther and shoot regularly. Um, you know, it's exciting now. I wish we had it, you know, 15 years ago. I, I would have been, it would have been a lot different uh, time for me too. Well, while we're on the subject of long shooters, I don't know if you've been following the Ball Brothers, but 
Lamelo, I believe it was, pulled up from half court in uh, Chino Hills. He plays in high school there. And then Alonzo is the one that's currently famous. He's at UCLA. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you've watched any of him because I, I assume that his jump shot either has or will drive you absolutely crazy. <laughs> well, you know, I went to a practice at UCLA. I'm, so, I'm a, so, somewhat of a friend of the program now. So I went and watched. And, um, the, you know, not only am I a, a, a shooting guy who studies all this stuff, but I'm a big hop guy, as I'm sure most people know. And so I'm watching him in practice. He's like breaking all these shots. And he, finally, the only one he ever nailed that whole practice was out of a hop. But uh, yeah, what he does is he cocks it to the left side of his face. And I'm sure a lot of these guys who I've talked with about the left eye, right eye dominant will insist that he's a left eye dominant shooter, which if he were like shooting with a gun and a rifle, he would have it in his left arm, you know, in his left shoulder or whatever, armpit, whatever, when he's shooting a rifle. Um, and so that's probably what he's trying to imitate. But then again, I studied it. I really watched it strongly. He's shooting. He was shooting really well. I don't know if he's sustained that now from three-point range. But um, as far as I can see, he's got a nice turn to get that alignment. And uh, it's a very re replicable uh, motion. And I don't see why it's much different than what everybody else does in that sort of Kevin Martin realm. And uh, Kevin Martin did very well, although only from one side of the floor, which is crazy. But look how well he did anyway. So I don't think it's going to be an issue with him. Do you? If it's replicable, it's not a problem. I, I still get a little bit worried about that. My bigger concern with him is his low release. Because while he's tall, if they end up defending him with twos, that's going to be harder to harder for him to get his shot off. But if he has the ball in his hands a lot, then he can make passes. He's one of the best passers I've seen in in the recent in recent times. So if he can use that as become more of like a, a catch and shoot and pull up when he has the look, it won't be as big a problem. Yeah, I mean, he reminds me of a Jason Kidd who can shoot when, when Kidd couldn't shoot early in his career. Well, so people talk about that a lot. I feel like that undersells Jason Kidd's defense. It's like a, Jason Kidd was a spectacular defender, but I love Lonzo too. They're just, they're a little bit different, but I think Kidd's a good comp. It's just that there aren't many good comps for Lonzo Ball or Jason Kidd. You're right. I mean, defense, shmee fence. Uh, let's talk about the fun <laughs> stuff is the offense. So, you know, um, but you're right. I mean, listen, and, and I, and I, I'm the guy who's always defending like Kawhi because his defense is so good and whatever, but, but you're right. Like uh, defensively, no, because uh, Jason Kidd has been forgotten how dominant he was on both ends of the floor without even being able to shoot uh, in that, like almost that Magic Johnson way. But um, the point was, was that, um, yeah, his passing is, is truly incredible and he can push the ball so fast on the dribble. I went to a game, uh, a UCLA game against, um, somebody and, uh, and I was on the floor and I was like, you couldn't believe how fast he was with that. And he can make, he can see the floor as better as well as anybody probably in the NBA right now. Um, and I, I do think that that's going to be a thing. I, I would predict that he would be a decent three point shooter to the point where, uh, it won't be an issue for him. Um, and I, I kind of get out of the way of the whole low release thing because I used to be a guy when I was running a high school program, like you, if you don't shoot the ball from like eyebrow Ridge or higher then uh, you're not playing varsity for me. But I, I went to a Lakers practice with when Nash was there and I'm watching him warm up and that dude shoots like he's, you know, in, in grade school from his chin. And I, at, at that point, I vowed to say, you know what? I'm never going to make anybody. And you watch like Damian Lillard's a little low. Uh, there's a lot of guys that shoot it lower, and it has, it has no bearing. I mean, when's the last time you see these guys get their three-point shot blocked? It's true. And even when they have bigger guys on them, they still do a pretty good job of pulling it up. And also, the best of the best have a good idea of space, and they know how much they need for their shot, which leads to it getting blocked less often. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that, that whole notion of like, oh, and you can't see the rim because the ball's in the way, well... 
it doesn't seem to matter uh, for all, you know, Nash was obviously one of the best shooters we ever had. And so um, I got over that finally. And I tortured kids. And I've had a, I called them later, years later, and apologized and said, you know, I'm sorry that I forced you to, to try and do this. I, didn't, I just didn't understand or see it until now. Um, but, it, but it's also true. Inter- I would wonder, and you have more experience dealing with, with youth basketball than I do. Maybe it's just that those guys are the exceptions that prove the rule, that if you shoot enough as those guys do, that you can actually make it work. But if at a lower level, if you have that, it's just too indicative of other problems. Um, interesting. I think uh, this specifically to the release point or the, the, the set point, by the way, the release point and set point are two different things. I usually you know, combine those and people would start yelling at me. But the <laughs> set point, before, like, as it's coming like near your eye before it starts to go up and out, I think that that is the one sort of fake fundamental that I, I just sort of get out of the way now. Interesting. And I have a couple other triggers I want to make sure happen. But it's I don't know. I've seen enough of it and enough guys that do it that way that I feel like it's not as much of an issue. Um, I wouldn't really you know push that because, you know, remember, like I was talking to Brandon, um, you know, uh, Steph Curry's trainer, uh, his, his shooting crazy guy. Um, and he, he gets into the physiology of people and how they're made up. And there are some people and a lot of people probably who just simply their bodies will not get into those positions that you're ideally hoping for for a jump shot. And if you're, if you're not going to go in and do a whole reworking of their muscles and that you know, balance and, and, and uh, functional movement, then you're never going to get what you're looking for. And there's probably another more comfortable, natural way that they can find it. So it's a really – it's a conundrum, right? It's tough. But, um, but I've gotten over at least the, the, the set point itself. As long as it goes in and, and you can repeat it, I don't have too much of a problem. Yeah, I mean, I asked Sean Marion about that, and that's what he told me too. But Sean Marion was such a violent <laughs> offender of so much of what shooting looked like. But you know what? I, 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 without checking, I mean, I think his wasn't his three point percentage somewhat decent. I think it was all right. It also benefited from taking like, a lot of that. Also, can be being judicious about it. You know, like making sure that you don't take bad shots. And he benefited from playing with some of the best passers, especially Steve Nash, that were around of his era. Yeah, you know, he wasn't very good. No, very good. But you know, I think because it was so ugly, it was surprising when he did make them. I mean, one year he did shoot thirty nine percent on four and a half attempts in the in the glory days. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's it's an interesting thing when you're talking about shooting because. Any kind of criticism is basically you're telling the guy his girlfriend's ugly, and um, it's hard. To, it's hard, you know, to, to deal with that. Uh, I there's some secret sauce that I've sort of discovered about you know methods of shooting that I feel like at, at that level, at the NBA level, these guys are so good that it's simply a matter of you know letting their own bodies figure it out. Like you know, okay, you're struggling from the right wing. So we're just going to get there. We're going to pass you from a couple different spots in the same way you get in the game. And we're going to let your body teach itself what it is it's doing and what it's not doing. Whatever Chip has done with Kawhi, could just, they should just bottle it up and start selling it once he retires. And just they can make a ton of money from it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I feel like we should bottle up whatever you have inside of you and sell it as well because it's certainly filled with lots of NBA information across the board. Uh, and I can't thank you enough for, for sharing some of it with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Well, also, before I forget, you know, let's just make sure that we tell everybody where they can find you, like on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. So shout us out where we can find you. I'm Danny LaRue on Twitter, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Write about the CBA for the Sporting News and Real GM, the Warriors for The Athletic. And then I do three podcasts, Dunked On with Nate Duncan. Real Jam Radio, which is my solo show, and then I do Locked on Warriors, which is a Warriors podcast, and then the Twitter NBA show is a live 
streaming through Periscope thing that Nate Duncan and I do. And we do that for basically one slate of national games per week. But if interest gets enough, we'll start doing it more. Yeah, those shows are really great. Uh, they're really fun to watch, especially because they're in uh, the Twitter environment, easy to watch. And, um, you know, you might have some competition coming up soon, Danny, just, just, to, just to warn you. Welcome, welcome all of it. Any good basketball content is welcome for me. <laughs> all right, great. We're working on it for maybe tonight, for Monday night or the, later next week. So we will see what happens and we'll have a battle of the Twitter, uh, the Twitter network stars. So uh, always great to talk to you, Danny. Thanks so much for coming on. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, not a channel, we're a conversation. Are you in? Are you in, Danny? Absolutely. <laughs>